HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Listening to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, your faithful, loyal host, Erica Weitz. And so I want to welcome you today to the end of summer wrap up show. Yes, you heard me right, the end of summer. Mm hmm. Now you're probably saying, wait a second, wait a second, what's happened to her? It's still summer. Even in the northernest bits of the northern hemisphere, it's still summer. Even in, in Iceland and Banff and Yukon, it's still summer. So what is she talking about? Greenland, still summer. What is she talking about? It's only July 28th. 28th? Yeah, 28th. We still have at least six weeks of summer left. And here in New York City, it's going to be 100 degrees today. So what's going on? What's gotten into her? What is she talking about? Well, the, this I need to wrap things up here this week. Basically, I need to end the summer here because things in my life are about to get a little crazy. And I'm not sure if I'm going to have the time to do new shows through August. So just in case, I'm taking precautions. I'm being prepared like a Boy Scout or like a Girl Scout, too. You know, when I was putting the show together this morning, I was like, how come the Boy Scout motto is be prepared? But the Girl Scout motto is something like, be cheerful. But you know what? I was wrong. The Girl Scout motto is also be prepared. That's good. The Girl Scout creed or whatever they call it is like, be cheerful, be helpful, be kind. But be prepared like the Boy Scouts. Very important. Be prepared. I was a Girl Scout. We were prepared also. Not just courteous, cheerful, and helpful. I was, Boy Sc- I was Girl Scout. 
my father was actually a lifelong Boy Scout, like started as a Cub Scout, worked his way up to Eagle Scout, became a Scout Troop leader, the whole thing. And because of that, it got him out of fighting in Korea. He got out of combat in Korea because they kept him stateside instead to lead a troop of officers' kids on a base in New Jersey. True story. My five foot two father would have gone off to Korea and probably have been killed had it not been for a lifelong devotion and service to the Boy Scouts. He was prepared. Anyway, I'm preparing you and myself because I'm probably not going to do new shows for the rest of the summer. And I'm a relatively cautious person. I know I like to think I'm more of a risk taker than I really am. But I think I fall in the middle somewhere. Sometimes I take risks, but I tend to be kind of more cautious than I would like to admit. But anyway, things are going to get really busy for me. So just in case, we're going to wrap up the summer. And what's happening, I'm sure you're wondering, is that for the last two years, believe it or not, two years, I've been consulting on a very slowly developing restaurant project. I met these clients two years ago. And we are finally getting ready to open this restaurant. And it's going to be happening within the month, we hope. Fingers crossed. Now, it's in Rye, New York. Rye. If you don't know Rye. If you watch Mad Men, Rye is where Betty moved with Henry after they got married into that gigantic old Victorian house where Henry's mom would babysit for Sally and fed her drugs. Remember that? When Sally passed out onto the couch with the knife in her hand? No. Anyway, that's Rye. So Rye is a suburb of New York in Westchester County, also the same county, which is the home of Tiny Bungalow, where I spend my summer weekends. But they're at opposite ends of the county geographically and also socioeconomically because my house is in Peekskill. Kind of a different scene. Rye is a fancy, upscale, wealthy Suburb that's part of a cluster of New York City suburbs that hold the greatest concentration of wealth in the United States in that cluster of suburbs. The greatest concentration of wealth right there. Rye is right next to Greenwich, Connecticut, for example, the birthplace of the hedge fund guy, and also the place where for many years I've taught cooking once a month to a group of women hedge fund wives, happily accepting their cash in my own version of trickle-down economics. Not a big fan of Reagan and trickle-down economics, except their cash trickled down to me, and that's how I bought my car. So that, that worked for me. But anyway, the restaurant in Rye is a vegetarian, although we're not using that word, vegetarian, plant-based. We don't know what word we're going to use. Vegetarian. Mediterranean modified QSR, which stands for quick service restaurant qsr like a chipotle or sweet greens but it's modified so it's a more upscale version of those kinds of places nicer atmosphere serving wine and craft beers a whole nice array of desserts food comes out on a real plate so you still order at the counter and your food is assembled to order and then you carry it back to your own seat and you sit down and eat but it's nicer and it has a bar hence the modified in modified qsr Got it? Vegetarian, Mediterranean, modified, QSR. So you enter and you're presented with an array of small tapas-like starters. Marinated vegetables, house-made pickles, hummus, olives, 
all that kind of stuff. You can choose a few of those. And then you move on to your entree, which starts with a base. Would you like a grain base? Would you like a salad base? We have different grains. We have couscous. We have salad greens. And then you choose your main, which we are calling cazuelas. I came up with that. The cazuela. Things like Moroccan vegetable tagine or French lentils with walnuts or Turkish eggplant stew with peppers and tomatoes or Tuscan white beans with kale. All also served with a serving of artisanal bread and also a choice of dessert. Not included, but there is also a choice of desserts. Oh, and also we'll be doing brunch. So it's all my food, all my recipes. It's awesome. We expect to open late August. So if you live within a 200-mile radius of Rye, New York, I will expect to see you there upon opening. Okay? I know where you are. Now, the food is very, very good, I must say. Imho. And I anticipate this being a huge success. So Westchester and Fairfield counties, you are welcome because finally you're getting some good food up there. And now go tell all your rich friends to come in. Oh, and the place is called Rosemary and Vine, as in rosemaryandvine.com. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff. I'm doing the social media feed, believe it or not. Jack's probably laughing at that one. Yes, he is. Maybe you'll tutor me. No, I'm better than, I'm not as lame. He's nodding. Yeah. So anyway, I'm going to be pretty busy with that through Labor Day. Thus, my need to end the summer here today it's over now who knows if things go just you know perfectly swimmingly well i may be able to squeeze in a show or two in august but we're just gonna have to see okay in the meantime you have 135 episodes of this show and 100 of my previous show why we cook to occupy your time so i don't think you'll be so at a loss or bereft okay now to wrap it up Let's think back to last week's show. And you'll remember last week my discourse on Dunness Spectrum Disorder. Do you remember this? Dunness Spectrum Disorder. Now, this is a newly discovered and named by me mental disorder in which people feel the compulsive need to overcook their proteins and undercook their vegetables. It's pervasive, it's insidious, and it may be undermining our food culture as we know it. It's right up there with orthorexia, which I think I have, as the two biggest dangers facing us today in the food world. But the good news is it's highly treatable and curable. In fact, the cure rate of Dunn's Spectrum Disorder is 100%, and it's totally covered by Obamacare to boot. Thanks, Obama. Now, all you need to do to treat DSO, as I call it, is to learn to be a better cook You can take classes, you can watch videos, you can hire me to teach you privately. If you live up in Greenwich, even better, because I'll charge you more. So easy. And yet, it's still so pervasive in our culture, Dunness Spectrum Disorder. And I think I know why. I think I figured it all out. I think it all boils down to fear. Fear. The pathological fear of food that we... As Americans have, because we live in a food culture that is so overwhelmingly processed and manufactured and packaged and removed from its true self. Because packaged means safe, packaged means sterile and clean. Raw food, loose food, actual food pulled warm from the earth or icy from the sea or dripping with blood or dirt, it's a little too real. For us, a little too let's get real for us. Too 19th century, too primal, too pre industrial, 
too close to the literal bone. We want clean, tidy, safe to keep our fears at bay of blood and death and decay and contamination far away from our minds and our consciences. We live in mortal fear of our food. We do. People live in fear of their food. The French, the Italians, they embrace their food. They embrace the risk inherent in all food. They welcome it. We run away from it. We try to protect ourselves from it. We, we fear it. We also fear hunger. Whereas I once read recently that the French cultivate their hunger and the Americans constantly try to stop it, which is why we snack all day. But we live in mortal fear of our food, fear of it sickening us, fear of it making us fat, fear of not getting the right nutrients, fear of the cultural signifiers that our choices reveal in us about our class and our income levels and our sophistication level or lack of it. This fear drives us, which is really too bad because it's just food. Well, if you eat actual real food, it's just food. Everything else, as you know, is foodiness or just crap. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more about fear and food. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. Welcome back to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on HeritageRadioNetwork.org with me, Erica Wides, your host. Remember that HeritageRadioNetwork.org is listener-supported. You, the listener, should support us, the station. Just saying. Okay. Now, at the end of June, I went to the Fancy Food Show here in New York. I think I mentioned it. Not the Sweets and Snacks Show. That was in May in Chicago, but the Fancy Food Show at the end of June, which is here in New York. It's a massive, massive three-day expo of all things food and foodiness, mostly foodiness, held at the Javits Center. If you've ever been to the Javits Center in New York, you know how big it is? It fills up the entire effing Javits Center. It's, you need several days to get through it. And as I wandered through the fancy food show by myself, and also with my super fan, Erica Pilgrim, hi, shout out, who found me at the fancy food show because she heard my voice. Isn't that freaky? She's my super fan. So we walked the show together. Anyway, so as I walked the show alone and with her, what struck me so deeply, and isn't that weird that my super fan has the same first name as me? I bet her name wasn't Erica until she started liking the show. And then just to be an even weirder stalker, she changed her first name to the same as mine. That's probably the case. Not too egotistical of me. So what struck me so deeply, anyway, at the Fancy Food Show, so profoundly, was that other than the many artisan cheese purveyors, which, yay, more every year, yay, and a few people selling cured meats, prosciutto and stuff, yay, everything else basically was packaged. Packaged. Hundreds of millions of little packages. Now, I get it that this was the Fancy Food Show. It wasn't 
the Produce Expo, which is actually a real thing, and I go every year, or the Raw Meat Show or the Bulk Flour and Grains Convention. I don't even know if those are real things, but you don't see like raw meat or bulk flour and grains at the Fancy Food Show. Those are not fancy foods. Those are just commodity foods. But there was so much packaging so much packaging every single item was in its own little mylar pouch or plastic wrapper or bottle or can or individual blister pack or vacuum sealed everything all wrapped up and safely removed from air because unless you're curing prosciutto or cheese air along with moisture are the enemy when it comes to packaged and even fresh food air and water the enemies dries it out or makes it moldy, introduces bacteria, hastens rot, allows for human contact, God forbid. So keep all the air and all the water out of your manufactured foodiness snacks with an X on the end, and they'll be good for years. But don't tell people that they're good for years. Instead, put a date on your product, like a date with a a vague phrase like best buy or use buy or enjoy buy. XXX date so that the fear will creep in as the date approaches and if that single serve pack of quinoa flecked sriracha flavored corn snacks with an X isn't eaten it'll be tossed on the massive trash heap of wasted food that we Americans are creating every year how and why because of fear because we fear the real food which spoils too quickly and then we fear the bogus expiration dates on processed foods and we throw those out too It makes me crazy. Keep the human paws off the food and the animal paws too, or at least out of sight, so that you don't contaminate, so that you don't spoil the food by actually touching it with human hands. You want to be really grossed out? It's not about eating your quinoa snacks a month past their expiration date. You want to be really grossed out? Visit a meat market in a developing country. Uh Uh-huh. Now, when I teach, you know, I taught for years at a big culinary school. Now I teach at a little teeny tiny one called Home Cooking New York. When we're making a steak or other meat, other proteins, the one thing I tell my students that's the most important thing I can tell them, well, two most important things, is that, first of all, let your proteins warm up a little bit when you take them out of the fridge. Don't just pull a freezing cold steak out of the fridge at 38 degrees Fahrenheit and drop it in a hot pan and expect to get a beautiful medium rare in the center. Because you're not going to, because you're going to have to overcook it for a long time just to hit that temp in the middle. But if you let it warm up to 50, 60 degrees, then you put it in the pan, you're going to have a much better, more even cooking experience. Uh huh. I also tell them to dry their proteins off, which is the second most important thing that I can teach you. Then they don't stick, they don't splatter, they're get, they get browner. Anyway, I just gave away my whole class for free. But I tell them to warm them up first to ensure more even cooking. And it really works, and it really helps. Well, inevitably, as I say that, I scan the faces in the room because somebody is going to get freaked out by this, a little to a lot freaked out by this, having been brainwashed and indoctrinated in the rules of so-called food safety, and they're fearing for their lives if a piece of raw protein spends more than five minutes between the fridge and the oven hovering in that danger zone of room temperature. Now, it would take like four hours for any real detectable bacteria to build up on that food. So you have a little bit of leeway there. You have a little cushion. My sister-in-law once got all freaked out because they had gone grocery shopping. And then 
I think we were with them and we had to stop somewhere at like Home Depot and she had milk and eggs in a bag and she was totally freaked out that they were going to be out of the fridge for half an hour. Oh, I could go on about her. Anyway, in the developing world, places like Vietnam, for example, where I have spent a lot of time working and teaching, meat is slaughtered, butchered and sold the same day in open air markets. So it's very fresh, but it sits out unrefrigerated in tropical temperatures with flies all over it. And nobody seems bothered by that. Nobody's freaking out. No one's calling in the health department. I don't think they have a health department. And the smell is pretty bad. Imagine 98 degrees. Imagine a day like today in New York, 98 degrees, 90% humidity, dead meat for a few hours. The smell is bad, but it's the smell of meat it's the smell of dead animals if you're going to eat them shouldn't you at least know what they actually smell like right shouldn't smell like the refrigerator room at costco now i'm not saying that we should turn off the refrigeration on our meat i mean imagine how bad costco would smell after a day or two of that but we need to get over the fear see it's all about the fear now yes admittedly we have major problems with e coli and salmonella and other foodborne pathogens and those problems seem to be only getting worse but that's because of how the animals are raised and slaughtered too quickly, industrially, unhealthily, over-medicated, and by overworked, stressed-out workers who are pushed constantly to speed up the processing line in order to keep the cost of production down so that overfed, overweight Westerners and increasingly Easterners can have their cheap meat, too, which is our basic human right, apparently, the dollar menu, which they can then take home and overcook if it's not the dollar menu. Out of fear. Maybe justifiable fear. I don't know. It's a very complex problem. And I, I grapple with it. And I debate with myself internally before every meal, every bite, every food choice that I make every day. Hello, orthorexia clinic? I need some help. Now, of course, the answer is that if you're going to eat meat, eat only good, pasture-raised, ethically produced meat. Right? Obvious choice, although some would argue that the raising of animals for meat in itself is unethical, but I disagree. But I'm not going to go there, ever, because that subject is too touchy and I don't want to invoke the vegan wrath machine on social media. So leave me alone. This is really the only way to go. But cost is a factor. Sourcing is a factor. You know, eat less meat. Eat better meat. But don't eat overcooked meat, at least. That's my meat motto. We're going to take another short break. Well, when we come back, more. Hi, I'm Mike Mills with 17th Street Barbecue in Murfreesboro, Illinois. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network.org. Welcome back to Let's Get Real. Cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network. When he said Mike Mills for a second, I thought it was Mike Mills from REM. But then I very quickly Very different realized, Mike Mills. Yeah, very different Mike Mills. I got all excited yeah. and sad because I thought maybe he was in the studio and I missed him. I just found out that a friend of mine is like BFFs with Michael Stipe. 
Who's BFFs with Michael Stipe? That's crazy. Anyway, welcome back to the show. So <clears throat> we're talking about food fear. And I was thinking a lot about food fear this weekend. I mean, I think really the basic fundamental platform of this show is about food fear because foodiness capitalizes on food fear because it's not real food, right? It's simulated food. If you're afraid of real food, oh, here, conveniently, we have this for you. And then Big Pharma, of course, capitalizes on foodiness by providing, what do we call it? A foodiness solution to a foodiness problem. Just so you don't forget what the show's all about. So this weekend, this past weekend, I was thinking about food fear a lot. Not as it relates to meat, because we're done with meat, except that we had our weekly Saturday night dinner with our neighbors and new friends. And they ate their very overcooked chicken again. We have to work on them a little bit. But no, as it relates to wild food, wild food. Now, there was a time there where Adam and I were really, really into wild mushroom foraging. And I learned a lot about wild mushrooms. And there's probably five species out there that I feel 100% comfortable with gathering and eating. But there's always that fear element. And even if it's a mushroom like a black trumpet, where there's no lookalike, there's nothing else out in the world like it. You know that they're black trumpets. When I pick them and eat them, Adam always says, I don't know. You can't be 100% sure. There could, could be some unknown poisonous lookalike. And I'm like, you need to just relax and let me eat these and I won't die. I'll be okay. But anyway, wild food, not mushrooms. Because we're in such a drought, there are no mushrooms. But specifically berries because it's berry season again here in tiny bungalow town and on the east coast and three weeks ago the black raspberries ripened although there's only like two bushes around and nobody else knows about them except me and they're all gone so forget the black raspberries and then over the last two weeks the wine berries started ripening now wine berries are like a wild raspberry they're kind of juicier and shinier and they're delicious and they're all over the place because they're this crazy invasive vine that is basically going to take over the world but that's okay because it's a vine with edible food on it so that's okay in my book like out in portland when i visit my friend lisa and everybody's like trying to get rid of all the blackberry vines everywhere but i'm like but people like it's free blackberries don't you understand what you have here they i don't know they don't appreciate them anyway the wine berries started exploding with ripeness and so We've been eating those, but what I've been really waiting for is wild blueberry season. And this past weekend, it was time. It was wild blueberry time in the mountains of the Hudson Valley. Yes, we have mountains. They're not that big, but, you know, they're mountains. Now, a couple of summers ago, I did a whole show about this after one of my neighbors in tiny bungalow town was literally aghast that we were eating the berries right off the bush that grew along our road. Aren't you scared of them? She asked me with like real fear in her eyes. Uh, no, I said, they're berries. But how can you be sure they're safe? She asked me. Um, well, I said, because people have been eating them since we crawled out of the primordial ooze and they're a well-known and recognizable species. They're off the charts in terms of nutrition compared to cultivated berries. And um, they're delicious. And also, they're free. That's the best part, of course. Now, she wouldn't even taste one, the neighbor, which was fine with me because, well, 
you know, more for me. So these are the same neighbors who go to Costco and BJ's. Now, you know, I like Costco. I was just there the other day. They do sell some very good products. They're making a huge effort. I like you, Costco. Don't get me wrong. But these same neighbors go to Costco and they buy the plastic clamshells full of Driscoll's berries. The ones that are doused with pesticides and fungicides and herbicides and grown for durability, not flavor. And grown for shipping, and then they're packaged in plastic, and they're shipped 3,000 miles from Mexico and South America so that fearful Americans can buy them right now in berry season when you could just walk out the front door, pick your own freaking berries off the bush. As I said, more for me. So just go away and leave me to pick my berries, please. Okay. So we were hiking on Saturday, as we do, and we chose a trail that in past years has been covered in wild blueberries, and this year did not disappoint. So... We're picking and eating and pick, well, we hiked and then we were picking and eating and picking and eating. And more than a few other hikers passed by us looking confused at what we were doing. And so one finally stopped and he asked me what we were doing. Uh, picking blueberries, I said. Those are blueberries? He asked me, only knowing apparently these steroidal water filled Jersey berries that he buys at Stop and Shop, apparently. Uh, yeah, I said, they're wild blueberries. Here, taste one. And I handed him one, and he ate it. And his face just lit up with the shock of the intensity of flavor from this teeny, tiny little berry. It's like the size of a peppercorn. He looked truly amazed by the taste. Truly. Now, we're in a drought here in the Northeast, like so much of the country. And so the berries this year are very, very tiny, but they're also very concentrated in flavor because of it. So they basically taste like artificial blueberry flavor. Ironically, they taste like blueberry cereal or like blue gum or blueberry jelly beans. They taste like blue flavor, which is kind of weird and creepy when I eat them, but delicious. And when you taste them, you understand what the flavorists at the flavor lab were going for when they created blueberry flavor, the taste of wild blueberry. It's almost unrecognizable when compared to its cultivated chubby cousin, a mere shadow of its former wild self. It's like putting a house cat next to a puma or uh, an 18th century American pioneer next to a 21st century SUV driver like that. Now, his hiking buddy passed by, and I offered him one, too. And he looked totally aghast and horrified and said to me, No thanks, I'm good. With a little bit of uh, something, a little attitude. I'm good. Like, I was trying to force him to do something. He wouldn't even taste them. And it was his loss. He was living with his fear of food. He was letting his fear prevent him from experiencing one of the great flavors in nature. It's like I was really a murderer disguised as a hiker, and I was trying to feed him poison berries. Like I had some plot right there on Anthony's nose hiking trail. Oh, shoot. I just gave you the name of the trail. Now you're going to go get all the berries. Well, there's plenty. I'll share. Well, too bad for him, because he can keep on drinking his blue-flavored recovery drink and eat his blue-flavor-dot-filled protein bar. Well, I'm getting the real thing while the real thing is there for the getting. Now, I'm going to be back up there this weekend picking and eating and picking and eating conquering my fears, laughing at my fears. And then, unfortunately, I'll be going off to Rye and opening the restaurant. So there goes the summer. That's the end of the summer. It goes so fast. It's like the fleeting flavor of a wild blueberry. 
You got to grab it while you can. So in the meantime, for the rest of the summer, please remember that if you don't want to eat shit, you have to keep listening, even in reruns, to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food here on Heritage Radio Network. Org. You can also check out the show on letsgetrealshow.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram and all of that stuff that I now know how to do, even though Jack thinks I don't. And we will be back at some point in August. Don't worry. I'll let you know. Oh, and I have a new Huffington Post piece up. It's about bluefish. I know you probably heard enough already, but it always takes me a few weeks. And uh, what else can I tell you? I guess that's it. Thanks to Jack, as always, in the control room. Thanks to Ben Kaplan, who wrote my theme music. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.